0: As we're working through the book of Ephesians, we are focusing heavily on the principles of the family. The principles of the family. Last week we introduced um, where the family derives from and what the relationship of the family is to one another and how that is equivocated in our relationship with God. And so what we want to do today is simply provide some biblical scriptural principles from the word of God on how we should live among one another as a family. Now it is imperative, it is important that I remind you that through Ephesians, Paul is giving us these directives that are not specifically and only exclusive to The family, but he's giving us these directives and these imperatives that should be found in the totality of the Christian life. Now, when we see these, we are taking these principles and putting them in the proper context of the family so that we can understand how we cohabitate with one another. And so today what we want to do is look at these four biblical principles and apply them in our lives and see how they'll have such a dramatic effect on our lives. Now, as I preach through this sermon, I think you all know me well enough to know that the goal is not to preach you happy. The goal is not to give you false a false sense of security that is based upon my own individualized philosophy. Everything that you will hear today comes solely from the Word of God. There are plenty of motivational speakers. You have Oprah, you have Dr. Phil. There are other people you can go to to get the secular opinion on how the family should be organized. But if you want to hear the biblical opinion of how the Bible should be organized, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I don't promise that because you apply these principles, that unilaterally you will go home and your house will be perfectly happy. But what I will say is that your house will be healthy. Your house will be healthy if you apply these principles. So let us jump into our text for today. Working through the end chapter verse of chapter 4 in Ephesians, working through verse 26. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Very quickly, that brings us to biblical principle number one. Don't harbor anger. Don't harbor anger. A lot of times we do hear that the secular world will tell us something about not harboring anger or not being angry, and they will often loosely apply this biblical principle. But what I want you to understand today is that that is our principle. That is a biblical principle to not harbor anger. That is not secular philosophy. That is what we are commanded and directed to do in the Bible. See, what you hear Paul doing here is he's quoting from Psalms 4 and 4. And in that scripture, David is saying that he is angry. Now, in that text, David, David was experiencing warranted anger. What is warranted anger? Any anger that is directed against any offense against God is warranted anger. In the context of that scripture in Psalm, David is experiencing people who are trying to not only attack God, but they're trying to kill him because of his faith in God and his relationship with God. And even in that moment, while his anger is warranted, David issues this direct command. He says, you be angry, you be warranted in that anger, but in that anger, don't let it lead to sin. Don't let that anger lead to sin. This is the righteous anger that is against the person or the people who are against God. Every one of us, if we're Christians in some sort of way, have seen people who have much maligned the name of God or much maligned Christianity and we get very angry about it think there is no more conduit than that than we see on social media where there are people who are right in principle when people are saying falsehoods about the gospel or saying falsehoods about Jesus Christ and they're right in principle to be angry. But very often there is this vitriol that comes from supposed Christians who are supposed to be defending Christ. You have a right sometimes when there is an offense against God to be angry. Not only do you have a right, but the Bible is teaching us this is in the present imperative. He's saying be angry when there is anything in life that is offensive to not just you, but offensive to God. You be angry about it. That is a commandment. So while people toss around the name of Jesus Christ and call themselves Christians, we are to be angry about it. But even in that warranted anger, he says, don't sin because of that anger. Now, most of the time when we think about when we are angry, There are not often situations that are violating the moral code of God. There are often not situations that are violating God himself. More often than not, when we are angry, specifically within our household, we are angry because somebody did something to offend us. If only we would be as angry about that which offends God as we are about that which offends us. And very often we will hold and harbor this anger because we are so sensitive about what offends us. And so even in this moment, as I tell you, be angry and sin not. If that commandment is focusing on warranted anger, the first question you have to ask when you are feeling angry is, do I right now have the right to be angry about this? That's the question. Because more often than not, the root of our anger is self-righteousness. Why do we get angry? Because the person didn't behave up to the level of expectation that I have for them. That's why we always get angry. No matter the situation, if somebody disappoints you and you get angry, they didn't behave to the level of the expectation that you have for them. If your wife or your husband doesn't behave in the manner in which you expect them, you have anger. But the question is, is it even warranted? If your husband forgets to take out the trash while it may be frustrating, do you have the right to be angry over something so small? If they say something out of the way, if they say something that hurts you, but it wasn't a sin against God, do you have the right to be angry? That is not warranted anger. And so just because we see this scripture and it commands us be angry, that is not the privilege. That is not the right. That is not the license to go be mad at everybody. It says be angry at what God is angry at. Be mad at what God is mad at. But for everything else, you settle it. But don't let it lead to sin. A miscommunication, an accident, a misunderstanding, a disagreement of views is not an example of having warranted anger. And it may be offensive and it may be bothersome, but in that moment, that is not the time to be angry. If someone has sinned against God and it legitimately offended you because they offended God, absolutely be angry. But if a person has only offended you and not offended God, you don't try to break into their heart and fix what's wrong with them. You got to tear into your own heart and fix what's wrong with you. Because I may have had an expectation of somebody and they may not have met that expectation. But let's be real and let's be clear. None of us have met the expectation that God has had for us. So how dare we hold anybody else to an expectation and be angry at them for not meeting that expectation. And here we are in various ways stumbling and offending God with our own lives. That should put your life in perspective. Because I've offended the greatest known existence, which is God. Yet God has extended grace and mercy to me. How dare I, just because someone is late for an appointment. How dare I, just because someone didn't do what I expected them to do. Be angry at them and think that it's warranted anger. Now, you may say, well, but God is angry. But who is God angry at? In scripture, the Bible tells us God is angry at the wicked always. That's the only people he's angry at. God is angry at the wicked. And he's only angry at them because they are not in fellowship with him. But even in his anger is his love that draws them to him. Only God is capable of not being inhibited by his anger. Because every ounce of anger God has ever had is completely justified. That's not the case with us. Most of our anger, most of the frustration that we exhibit is just because people didn't behave the way we wanted them to behave. So if you are angry at someone, a friend or even a family member, then you let them know you let them know that is the biblical standard. You don't go around harboring that anger and frustration. But if you are legitimately angry or frustrated or disappointed with a brother or with a sister, the Bible commands you before you come to church before you try to offer any praise or worship, before you try to do anything, you go to that person with which you have an issue with and you address them. That's the way that you prevent yourself from harboring anger and resentment. Just this past week at work, our interim principal and our executive director told the story about How they were in a meeting together, and there were some things that our executive director said that offended and frustrated our principal. And you know what he did? He went back to him after that meeting and he said, You know what? I'm mad. (coughs) I'm angry at some of the stuff that you said. Now, for a lot of us, that's taboo. But what is taboo is to take that anger and spread it out to everybody else so that you can get them all to feel the way that you feel. The biblical standard is if you have an alt with your brother or with your sister, you go to them with that issue and you resolve it with them. That's why the Bible says, if at all possible, Be at peace with everyone. That's the scriptural commandment. How many times and how many ways have we put ourselves in disagreement with people just because we never went back to them and communicated to them that we were offended by something they did or said? many times did you realize, if you went back to them, that what they said was not actually even what they meant? And because every response we have is couched on a particular experience, they said it based on their own experience, and you received it based on your own experience. That's happened in my life many a time. Because I tend to be a very matter-of-fact person and I just say exactly the, what I feel, the way I think it should be communicated. But not everybody receives it that way. And what I can't do is be offended because they didn't receive it the way I threw it. And there are going to be times that I'm going to try to receive something and somebody didn't even throw it that way. The way you prevent resentment and anger from being harbored in your life is that if there is an issue, you go to that person. Many times when we look at this scripture, he tells us, he warns us. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this is not some arbitrary, because you know they may not wake up in the morning. That's not what he's making a reference to. He's making a reference to, if you go to sleep angry, there is no way you're going to wake up feeling less angry. And a lot of us think, that I just need to sleep on it. No, you don't. Because when you sleep on it, you dream on it. And when you dream on it, it has gotten into your spirit to such a way that I guarantee you when they sneeze, it annoys you. Because that's what resentment does. And so if it's 12 o'clock at midnight and we just had a fight, I'm sorry, baby. We got to resolve it before we go to sleep because sleeping is not going to make me feel any better. And if I want to be at peace with God, i got to be at peace with you. So if we are harboring and if we have let anger in our lives to become resentment, let me be clear. That is a sin. That is a sin. And it's a sin against God. Because the root of the inability to forgive... Is what causes resentment. The only reason you will resent anyone is because you can't forgive that person. And that is a great sin against God. But why? Let's look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this isn't to say that if you are a Christian, that automatically that your sins that have been paid for and, and have been forgiven will automatically be no longer forgiven. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that in the life of a Christian, in the life of a born again, forgiving, forgiven former sinner, there is forgiveness for other people in your lives as well. The sign of resentment, the sign of unforgiveness is the unforgiven, unrepentant sinner. That's what he's saying. The person who is unable to forgive is unable to do so because their sins have not been forgiven. The only way your sins will remain unforgiven is if you are not a Christian. And so if you are harboring resentment, that is not just, okay, God, let me be better. That is the moment for you to take an introspective look and say, God, let me examine myself. Because if resentment and anger is not becoming in the life of a Christian, either I need to mature or I need to be saved. Now, you may think, Again, why does this apply to the family? If you are a Christian, this is not something extra you should be doing. These are everyday regular principles that are expectations in the life of a Christian. Why should Christian households be healthier than worldly households? Because we are applying these principles to all of our life. We don't just wait till we get home to apply these principles. All of these principles should be becoming in the life of a Christian. Let's look at Ephesians. Let's look at verse 28. Back in chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And bring us a biblical principle number two, which is again straight from the text. Work honestly and give generously. Work honestly and give generously. Stealing, though it comes in various forms, is a sin in all regards. The charge is that the former thief gives up this sinful act, sure. But the greatest charge is for them to give up the lofty desires of their heart that would drive them to take and steal what is not theirs. But rather, in contrast, so in contrast to him that formerly sold, let him work, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Remember what we talked about last week. What is the commandment for the man in the household? The commandment is to work, but not just work, working in an honest way. Now, why would there be a charge to work in an honest way? Because the corollary is there's going to be a a, the expectation that some people were working in a dishonest way. So there were some people who were working and they were doing so in principle is say, see God I'm working you commanded me to work so I'm working but if that work is not subjected to God's plan of work, which is honest, which is with your own hands, with his sincere work, then just because you get it right in principle, doesn't mean you get it right in practice. Now, why would any of us work in a dishonest way? More often than not, the reason we will work in a dishonest way is because we have subjected ourselves to the culture of materialism that says that we have to have all of these things. And if I don't feel I can earn enough on my job, I devote myself to any get-rich-quick scheme so that I can fulfill this appetite of materialism that I have. Remember what we read in James. He says, because of the culture of your materialism, you have not, so you steal. That's what we do. That causes the fights and the quarrels among us. So God has not only called us as men, as husbands, to provide for our families, but he's called us to do so in a way that is pleasing to him. Which means you may be providing for your family, but if it dishonors God, you're not really providing for them at all. And he says this this type of work is not only honest, but it stimulates giving, giving in the life of the Christian. It causes you to want to give because you are earning and you are working sincerely. Now, in order to live this way, you can't cultivate a life of materialism in your home. You just cannot do it. I was recently at school, and I was looking down at some of the feet of many of our children. I even posted on Facebook. Facebook, I said, there go their light bills right there. They're on their feet. And many times you have parents who are struggling, who are working hard to provide for their families. But if you are providing shoes that cause other bills to be disregarded, you are not providing for your family at all. In fact, I would even go as far to say that's neglect. That is absolutely neglect. Neglect. Now, it may not be neglect by the world's standards. They may say, look how that, his parents love him. He got everything. But by God's standard, if you are neglecting to meet the most basic spiritual needs that your child has while they walk around in their jays, then you are neglecting them. Let's look at this. 1 Timothy 5. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, I want you to hear this. This is not Brandon saying it. This is Paul. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is an incredible indictment by Paul. That if you are failing to provide for your family, specifically those in your household, one, you have denied the faith. And you are even worse than the unbelievers. Why does he say that? Because even the pagans would take care of their own. They might have hated the Christians, but they were taking care of their own. If we as Christians are failing to provide for our families, both spiritually and emotionally and financially and economically in whatever other ways we can, we have denied the faith. And we are worse than the unbelievers. Now, clearly, this is not in situations where we are unable to provide. That is the purpose of the church. The church exists. So in the times when you are unable to provide and you are extending yourself to be providing for your family, the church undergirds you and they hold you up. That's the role of the church. That means that the primary role of the church is not to just take money from you, but when you need something as well, we are the resource you go to. Because inevitably, as we talk about the family, this is not just the family in the house. This is the family of believers. And we bear one another's burdens. Now... There are absolutely two levels to this, and I want you to be able to see these. You should work to provide, but you should not have a life that forces you to work beyond being present in your home and having a relationship with your family. That's the balance. And there's always balance. Very often we become extremists because we'll say the Bible says either this or that. But the Bible actually says both. You work and you work hard and you love and then you enjoy your family. And don't cultivate a life for yourself that causes you to work so much that your family doesn't even know who you are. Look at this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his work. This is God's gift to man. What about this? Psalms 127 and 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who Build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives it to his beloved sleep. See, not only is it a sin not to work, but it's a sin to overwork. And many times, that has been the scapegoat, especially for us as men, to why we can't be spiritually and emotionally present in our household. baby, I gotta provide for my family. These bills have to be paid. But the reality is, is that if we have created a lifestyle in our house, where we have inexuberant amounts of bills that have to be paid, because we live not below our means, But because we live beneath our means. If we have cultivated that life and we have to exhaust ourselves at work because we are living far beyond what we should. That is a sin against God. Because you have cultivated the life that I have to have this. And in order to have it, I got to do this. And it has taken fathers and mothers out of the home and placed them at work while the world raises the children. Overworking is the symptom of a lust for money. That's what it is. You say, well, you don't know that my light bill is this and this is that and this this is my mortgage. This is my rent. This is my car. note." but you controlled all of those bills. You say, well, my credit is messed up. Well, how did it get messed up? What did you have? What did you not have that you really, really had to have that you put it on that credit card? Knowing full well, you were not going to be able to pay for it. What car note did you get because the car looked so nice and it had the leather seats and it had all the things that you needed that now you have created a life for yourself that you got to drive and work and exhaust just to make sure your ends barely meet. Do you think that's the life God cultivated for us? Scripture tells us it's not. He says for us to enjoy our work is a gift from God. How many of us enjoy our work? How many of us literally only work so that we can have enough food in our house so that the bills can be paid? Not because we enjoy what we do at all. Say again, what does this have to do with the family? When this is your life, it permeates everything that happens in your household. Because there is no person who is miserable for eight hours a day, some of us even longer, that's going to come home and be happy. They're certainly not going to come home and be present. And what you feel whenever you go to work, the anger and the resentment and the frustration you feel about that job. Every time you look at that house, every time you look at those kids eating up your food, God knows I do. It only reminds you, I got to go back to work. Biblical principle number three. Build up Even when tearing down is easy. That's verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, yes, when we went through James, we absolutely talked about taming the tongue and we addressed many of these things. But I want to really bring it inside the home at this point. When Paul says corrupting, that literally means polluted or decaying flesh. He says, let no corrupting talk, no foul talk, no spoiled talk come out of our mouths. He, he says, do not let anything come out of your mouth that is breaking down what should be built up. It is always a challenge when we are angry to not lash out and to tear down. But we have an obligation Even when we are angry, when we are frustrated, to build one another up. Because in those moments, the easiest thing to do is to tear them down. Now, even if you are frustrated at your spouse or frustrated at your kids for not behaving the way that you think they should have behaved, that is never an opportunity for you to tear them down because what I want you to understand especially as parents we are very very capable of tearing them down but we are not capable of building them back up and if we build them up if we build them up where they are already built up that's why scripture says this and we've misinterpreted for a long time train up a child in the way that he might go what we think that is is Train him up in the Christian faith that he'll never depart from it. If that's the case, then it's not true. Because there are plenty of kids who have been raised in Christian households, and I've seen people who had five kids and they had that one. What does this scripture mean? You train up a child in the way that they are bent. In the direction that they are growing. Don't try to mold them into be what you want them to be. You train them up in the direction that they are going. As long as the direction they're going is inoffensive to God. You just train them up in the way that they're going. And when they get older they will not depart from that. Many times there are too many kids who have been so broken not because we were trying to train them up in the way that they would go because we were trying to break them to go the way we wanted them to go. And how do we often do that? We break them with our words. This is a struggle in my own household because I've told y'all before I have a piercing tongue. I have a piercing tongue. And so it is a constant reminder of God that I have to build up And not tear down and the reason is more important is that speaking in a way that builds people up is evidence of new life in Christ it is evidence of new life in Christ and so by doing so we give grace to the hearers but we also do not grieve the Holy Spirit for by God through his son we have all received the spirit of grace and that inevitably, inevitably brings us to our fourth and final principle for today. You can say this is the sum total of all our principles. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's it. Here it is right here. Paul says that we have to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. And this is not new age philosophy. This is not hippie talk, but this is scripture. We have an obligation to treat each other with respect and to be kind towards one another. Now, what does this mean? If someone upsets you, you don't have the right to be neutral towards them. What do I mean by that? Well, I ain't mad. I just ain't going to talk to her no more. You don't have that right. You can't give them a cold shoulder. Be kind to them. And just in case you don't know this, being kind is an active imperative, which means there's something you must be doing to that person in order to be kind to them. You're not disregarding them. You're not forgiving, but not forgetting. None of that. Be kind to them. And this means in the hardest way to be consistently kind to them. Who are the most difficult people for us to be kind with? The people we see every single day. The people we wake up with every day. It is a struggle because we see them all the time. Even the people you work with, they see a portion of who you are. And it's, oh, she's so sweet. You don't live with her. You should in no way be more kind to those outside of your home than you are to those inside of your home. And it is going to absolutely be a struggle. It's going to be hard. But you are gentle towards them and you are tender hearted towards them because God, even in our rebellion, has not given us the coldness of rejection. In fact, he's given us his son. That through his son and the grace of the the sacrifice of his son, that though we were rejecting him, though we were in rebellion against him, we can be in right fellowship, and relationship with him. And that's the same example that we should follow. Let's pray.